0: As a leader in advanced HVAC technologies, Mitsubishi Electric is committed to continuous innovation around efficiency, comfort, and wellness, with a focus on personal comfort and prosperous communities. Mitsubishi offers a variety of indoor options, including high wall floor mount, duct handlers, and extremely popular one-way ceiling cassette. Climate systems are great for a single room or the entire home, providing 100% capacity to minus five degrees. A full range of control options, including Wi-Fi, touchscreen, and thermostats, and simple remotes are available to meet every customer's needs. Mitsubishi's regional sales and marketing teams are available to meet with you and help you grow your business. For more information, go to MitsubishiComfort.com. Slogan is an award-winning professional speaker and author of The Seller's Journey, a business fable about navigating the emotional obstacles to selling your business. Denise knows that, to an owner, selling their business is so much more than a transaction. Known as the Seller Whisperer, she draws upon a 20-year body of work focused on the intersection of work, money, and meaning, and how it is reflected in the legacies of today's business leaders. Welcome, Denise. Good afternoon. Mark Madison here on Books and People. Welcome to my podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Denise Logan. Denise, how are you?
1: I'm so great. It's nice to be with you, Mark.
0: <laughs> Good to see you again. We were just in Phoenix a few weeks ago. That was awesome finally getting to meet you. So I'm just curious, how did you get started? Where did you Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in a small town in Ontario, Canada, which is why I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. We don't shovel sunshine here.
0: No, you don't. And (laughs) where did you go to school?
1: I went to college in Michigan and then later in Texas. And I went to law school in Southern California.
0: Uh, Can you name the school or is it?
1: Oh, yeah, it's not a secret. Let's see. I started my undergrad at uh, Central Michigan University. Okay. And then I finished at the University of Texas in Arlington. And I went to law school at Southwestern University.
0: Southwestern, okay. Yeah,
1: in downtown Los Angeles.
0: So Central Michigan, that's where uh, Dan Marley's from.
1: And now, are you going to talk to me about sports? Because you know I don't know a darn thing.
0: No, he he he's just <laughs> he owns a bar in Phoenix. He played for the Phoenix Suns.
1: Actually, oh, he has a couple of
0: them. Yeah. There
1: you go. But he's yeah. a Central
0: Michigan guy, so I, that's the only reason I brought it up. I
1: don't think I knew that, but that's you know what sports are obviously not the place where I live.
0: No, it's totally fine. So uh, we met. How was it? Was it Kevin?
1: We was, met through Kevin. Yeah.
0: Kevin Knebel, that rascal, <laughs> a mutual friend. And he said, you know, you guys need to meet. I forget even how we connected. Was it, was it online initially?
1: hmm Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, so you, you went to law school. How did you go from law school to what you do now?
1: You know, so early life, I was a mental health professional and then I became a lawyer. And my original study, I have two tracks as a mental health professional, one is work and financial disorders, so people who are addicted to work and money. And the other is, is thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that I think is always interesting at the time, I don't think I would have been able to tell you how those two things fit together. But after having practiced long for more than a decade, I realized I was sick of it. And the process of exiting my own business and stepping into something else made me realize how many times business owners move back and forth between an ad- almost an addictive behavior to their work because we mm. get so many needs met from our work. And yet at the time of exiting a business, it can feel like a death.
0: Interesting. You talk a little bit about that in your book, The Seller's Journey.
1: I do. Yeah. You know, that book came about, you know, when I left my law practice, um, I merged with a large Baltimore firm, got rid of my house and bought a motor home and I took off. (laughs) No
0: way. You did a Jack Kerouac.
1: I did. And, you know, I thought it would be six months where I would clear my head and figure out what came next. And Uh it turned into several years where I traveled all over North and Central America. And when I came off the road, I joined a friend's business who was preparing it for sale. Over the next 10 years, we took that business to the market three times, and he found it impossible to let go. And ultimately, I left and did a research study to try to figure out why do business owners get stuck? How is it that they end up like me waiting too long and practically giving my business away because I was just ready to go or going too early like him and not being able to pull the trigger? And from that research, I started working one-on-one with business owners and their advisors to help them navigate the emotional obstacles to letting go.
0: Who am I without my business?
1: Who am I? Right, and the seller's journey came about. It is written as a business fable, much like your books, Mark, and it's the story of a business owner one year after he sells his business. Right, he goes on a trip across Glacier National Park with his banker, his lawyer, his financial advisor, and the buyer of his firm. And right now, you might be wondering, hey, is that a murder mystery? Because
0: right. who done it? <laughs>
1: But as they cross the glacier, they're relating the physical obstacles they face to the emotional obstacles that he faced in letting go of his business.
0: And, and you you do it in a very conversational tone. That's what I love about it. It's almost like not a children's story, but it, it's written in every man language. And I love that.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that I wanted most with that book was to create the normalizing the experience that owners go through when they are selling their business, Mm -hmm. because for the most part, the professionals around them are treating it like a transaction and they're talking about the money and the process of the deal. And yet for the business owner, this is the single largest transition in their adult professional life. And I wanted to normalize that experience for them and be able to create the conditions where they could express that also to their advisors and not right. feel like it's just them
0: yeah you do it in a way that's really smooth and and uh, connected it's it's just uh as they're getting ready to, to to go hiking and getting dressed and all those things and it's like and then we're on the trail and say oh by the way how about this and it's like you just it's just layered it just starts unfolding and you just go And and I was reading it, and I'm thinking, I can think of a dozen contractors right off the top of my head that should have read this before they sold their business and probably need to read it after they sold their business.
1: It will work afterwards. You know, one of the experiences I had when I sold my business was I got what I wanted, right? I wanted out. But once I was out, I thought, wait, was that what I wanted? I got what I wanted. Oh, no, I got what I wanted. And I think the people around me didn't quite understand what was happening because although I felt great relief, I also felt a sense of loss. So there I was sitting on my patio one morning, really grateful that I did not have to go to work. And suddenly a thought would pop into my head like, oh, I should tell so-and-so, oh, wait a minute, that's not mine to do anymore. Right. And... Often the people around us, as um, as our family or friends, think, but you got a big old sack of cash. Wasn't that enough? And, you know, Mark, one of the things that I think about is that work provides so much more for us mm-hmm. than just money and financial security. Right. Right. I mean, if you and I were just to brainstorm, what are all the things that work provides for you other than
0: money? And if I am what I do and I don't, I'm not.
1: Mm, That is my little, my little thing where I'm like, right. Because so many times everywhere we go, the first question we're asked is what do you do? Right. Whether that question makes any sense or not. Right. I was getting my hair done and the gal, a couple of uh, seats down from me in the hair salon shouts over the blow dryer. So what do you do? And I said, about what? (laughs) i mean here we are in the hair salon and sometimes i actually challenge business owners to begin doing that when someone asks you what do you do do you automatically answer with how you earn your money
0: what do you do about what
1: (laughs) right because that is also part of unwinding our identity from our business You know, the question that I often ask is, what does work provide for you other than money and financial security? And for me, there are lots of things, right? It's structure, a place to go, intellectual stimulation, friendship, sometimes things we don't even like to admit, like power. You know, at work, I say I want something done, and it pretty much happens. And I don't know about you, Mark, but at home, that's not always true for me
0: well i have to tell you this story so i'm fixing an ice machine 25 years old at the horizon house in seattle and the lunch bell rings and 35 women are chasing george and they're all in their (laughs) 80s and 90s and george is on a dead run like oh no not again they're like you george sit with me and i'm watching this drama unfold and i'm thinking okay that's hilarious but then i went oh my gosh where's all the dudes right right and and the answer is they're dead and -hmm. then i said why and i came to the three conclusions that women eat better than men do women exercise and women talk about real things okay Mm -hmm. those are obvious ones Mm -hmm. but the fourth insight was if i am what i do when i don't i'm not what you know if all my worth comes from my work and i don't do work anymore now i'm less less than
1: It is a really, it's an issue that we don't talk about enough. And it's one of the reasons why I do the work that I do in the world, because I recognize that when you get a big sack of cash for selling your business, those other needs that are getting met by work, don't go away. Mm -hmm. And it is our responsibility to try to sort out what are those other things? Where will I get my friendship other than at work? Because for many business owners, Our employees and our customers and our vendors are our friends. So where will that friendship need get met? Where will the structure in your life come from? And when we're able to start looking at those pieces, a business owner can let go by finding other ways to meet those needs. Otherwise, what I saw happen is that they would get very close to the end and suddenly do what I call an, oh my one more year (laughs) oh my and we will all leave our businesses one day voluntarily or involuntarily right and why not make that choice
0: i'm so glad i had you on this podcast today (laughs) i mean the first time we talked i went this is my sister from another mother (laughs) right yeah. And then when I met you in person, I was like, oh, come on. She's even nicer than she is on the phone, <laughs> but you're not just nice. You're so smart. And, and, but the thing is, there's a calm about you, right? What, what really got me was when you said, because here you are this mental health professional, right? You, you know, you're healthy from a wellness standpoint, right? Mentally. And you said, Oh, Oh, oh now what, uh, what do I do? Who am I without my business?
1: It was a big issue. And, you know, I knew I needed to leave my business several years before I did. Can I tell you a story about how that came to be?
0: I love a story. Take as much time (laughs) as you like.
1: So I was on a board of directors for a trade organization that was related to the kind of law I practiced. And I'd been on the board probably, I don't know, seven or eight years probably at that point. And they brought in a facilitator to do a team building exercise. I know everyone who's listening is, you know, like maybe throw up a little in your mouth because you're thinking, "Oh, team building, gross." And so they put us in a ballroom on a Tuesday night in Alexandria, Virginia, and the woman says, "You're all going to stand in a circle and you're going to introduce yourself to each other, not using a traditional moniker." And I'm thinking, like, what? And so the first woman shares, "Oh, I." I play harp at the bedside of the dying. I'm like, well, that's something. And then the guy standing next to her says he's restoring a car in a secret location as a surprise for his son on his 16th birthday. And every night when he comes home from having worked on the car, he's worried that his wife sees the dirt under his fingernails and will know that he's doing something else. I'm like, well, that's something. So it's creeping around the circle, getting closer to me. And honestly, I didn't have another answer other than I'm a lawyer. I'm a wife. I did not have another answer. So Mm. I thought, you know what? I'm going to excuse myself to the ladies room. So I take my purse and I go out of the ballroom and to the right is the ladies room and to the left was the parking lot and I bailed.
0: You bolted.
1: I bailed, I got in my car, and I drove home in the rain, weeping, because I realized that my business had taken over every part of my life. And it began a change for me, where I realized it's time to reclaim my life. And even when I sold my business, I wasn't ready. I wasn't fully ready. And what I noticed is along the way from then, it took me about almost four years from that experience in that ballroom to really get ready to leave my business. And that's not whether the business was ready. It was about emotionally,
0: psychologically,
1: exactly. Preparing to let go. And even on that day, you know, the firm that acquired us sent all of their trucks because it was back at a time when there really were files and file cabinets and desks. And so they sent all their trucks I picked up all of the equipment, and the last truck was turning the corner away from the office building, and I just wanted to have a look at it. So I leaned in toward the window, and I hit my head, boom, on the window, and suddenly there were tears pouring down my face, and I thought, I didn't really hit my head that hard, and that's when I realized, oh, it's not just about hitting my head. I am actually letting go. Of something that was quite momentous in my life. And even though I was getting what I wanted, I also knew that I was beginning quite a transformation in my life. Yeah.
0: Commencement, the word means the end of one thing and the beginning of another.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, Mark, we have celebrations and we have passages that we mark right. in our lives around that. There's a reason why we have graduation ceremonies and wedding ceremonies and why yes, we
0: rituals mark- to celebrate and help us in the transition.
1: And we go through those transitions with other people. And yet, for a business owner, often this transition is something that they go through alone. Mm-hmm. And may not have ever known anyone else who experienced that transition. Right, And it's not just a transition for our owner. It's also a transition for their family. Because you know, you know what we call it when the last child leaves home, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Empty nest syndrome.
1: Yeah. And for our owners, the business is often the last baby, the last child that's leaving home. And so nobody
0: tells you that unless you buy, unless they buy your book.
1: (laughs) But you know, what's interesting is that we know what to call it when, when our children leave home. We know it is empty nest. We know that experience of going through it with other people. So what feels important to me is making sure that business owners don't feel alone as they go through this really powerful and amazing transition in their life
0: right you uh, i was sitting here thinking about elizabeth kubler ross's on death and dying she talks mm-hmm. about shock denial anger or bargaining acceptance yes and that's really what i'm hearing you say is we go through that my sister is as we speak is lying in a hospice bed and it's she's in her final days
1: oh no
0: mark oh i, didn't I know, know that. and i've been mentally preparing myself i'm going up to see her next week and hopefully she's still there but uh I know what's gonna happen. I can tell you what's gonna happen, but yeah. nothing prepares you for when it actually happens and you're in it. I can't tell you how many contractors I've worked with. They sold their business and now they're finally gonna do all the things they wanted to do. And they're gonna fish and they're gonna travel and they're gonna to... and then a year, year and a half later they go, I am bored out of my skull and I'm driving my wife crazy. And there's a percentage of them that says, Well, I think I'll just start another business.
1: Well, and you off know, they go. Golf and travel is not a plan. <laughs> That's right. An outline, but that is not a plan. Right. And so, you know, there's a, there's a story in the book, and I won't spoil the book, but I will tell you and your listeners this little piece because it's based on a client that I worked with. He was uh, close to the end of the sale of his business and then suddenly announced that he needed significantly more money than it was and the investment banker called me and said i think my seller went crazy i'm like yeah it sounds like it let's see if we can figure out what scared him and his plan was to sell the business and buy a sailboat and sail around the globe and honestly that's about as far as his plan had gotten right and two weeks before he asked this for this unicorn of more money his wife said i'm not doing that." (laughs) I do not want to be stuck on a boat with you
0: far away from
1: my grandkids. (laughs) Heck no, that's not happening. And can we agree he's not going to come back and tell the deal team that the deal is off because his wife won't let him do what he wants to do. Instead, he asked for more money because he thought that would kill the deal and let him stay in place. So once I figured out what was happening, I did some one-on-one work with he and his wife separately and created a solution where he would buy the sailboat and sail. And every six weeks, she would take one grandchild and fly to where he was. They would do two weeks on land, building memories with the child. Then she would fly home and he would sail on. Boom. The deal was back on track and closed on time at its original asking price because it wasn't really about the money. It was about all of those things. Like we call it relational grief, which is we think our life is gonna be a particular way. And especially for business owners, we've gone all this way. And we think when we reach the promised land, then we'll do stuff together. But sometimes we get close and realize what you want is not what I want. And rather than stay stuck in their business, my view is we can acknowledge what's happening and find another solution. You, you may be an Abraham
0: su- Lincoln. He I- used to prepare both sides of the case.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and you then might be, he would
0: go to trial.
1: You know, Mark, you might be surprised to learn that only one third of the businesses that go to the market for sale successfully close.
0: I didn't know that I would have said half
1: two thirds of the businesses try to sell and are unsuccessful. And those businesses often fail. And that is a tragedy because small businesses in our country are lifesavers. They are what make our economy run.
0: Yeah.
1: And when a business owner, you know, as I said, we will all leave our businesses. It's it. One of the things that I watch owners defer their exit is a fear that if I sell, if I retire, and that word has a whole lot of charge around it, but if I retire, I'll drop dead. And the truth is that we'll die anyway at some point. (laughs) And it's not the leaving your business that causes the death. It's the not having something else you're going to.
0: If I am what I do and I don't, I'm not. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And uh, uh, men derive their self-worth from their work and women have a much more balanced view of life. And I think that's a huge part of it. It is
1: is a piece of it. And it's the reason why in that important question that I suggest people ask is, where are all those other needs going to get met? So where right. will your friendships come from? Right. And can we begin long before the end to reinforce our friendships? It happens. I see it a lot that men's friendships drift when they get busy with their business and their families. Right. And suddenly they wake up and realize, oh, who will I spend my time with? I And it's not just older men either, because I was working with, an owner, he was in his late 30s. He was scheduled to net 16 million dollars from the sale of his business. And one day he realized, Who am I going to hang out with? Mm. All my buddies have jobs. So he was shooting pool with his best friend. And he said that to him, to which his buddy replied, Boo hoo, I wish I had your sad little 16 million dollar problem. You right. can buy friends. Ew. That's not a good answer. We don't want to buy our friends. It's
0: kind of like the last single guy. All his friends are married, having kids, and he finds himself alone.
1: Yeah. And the point is you don't want to just rush out and pick up any old girl and marry her because we know how that goes. That's not a successful strategy. So often what I'm doing is encouraging owners, and especially men, to look at where are you going to get those other needs met. Where will you get your wisdom? I think that is one of the number one things that I hear um, men tell me, well, who will value me for all this wisdom that I've garnered? Right. And there are lots of ways to be able to use that mentoring in the world around you where your wisdom is valued.
0: I can't go to the health club where I work out without having a conversation with a young person. And the consultant in me just comes, the coach in me just comes out and I start asking questions and they go, well, who are you? (laughs) I go, well, let me forward one of my books to you and that'll, that'll get you started.
1: Right. You're like, who are you? Great man.
0: Oh, wise man. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I'm Gandalf with a, with a long beard. Uh, So before we run out of time, because I know listeners, uh, a lot of them are sitting there thinking, I need to, I need to contact this person I need to read her book so how do we do that
1: Hmm. my website is deniselogan.com nice and easy you're always welcome to send me a message at denise at deniselogan.com the book is available on the website or if you're a kindle or audible reader you can get it on amazon and um, I would love to have a conversation I speak and write on this topic of the art of letting go, and how we weave work, money, and meaning into a greater legacy than when we focus on just one of those alone.
0: And the thing is, I know some people are sitting here thinking, she has such a calming presence, her voice, (laughs) her language, the way she articulates this great story, but you're even more than that in person. So uh, it's been... For me, it's just been a joy. I don't I can't remember the last time I connected with somebody so completely on the first tele teleconference I had with them. And you're I, just that you're just that easy to get along with.
1: I feel like that with you too, Mark. It was such a pleasure for us to get to spend some time together when you were here in yeah. Arizona recently. That was such an extra treat for me.
0: Well, and it was made doubly special for me because the client was a young man that I coached in 1989 when he was 11 and I was in my thirties and now he has this successful business and, and it was, and he hired me to work with his company. And I was like, really, I'm getting paid for this. I would do it for free. It was, you know, it's James, you know, it's like,
1: it was so obvious that, you know, the connection that you had with him and just the many ways that I heard him speak of you at the conference was really lovely.
0: He's the smartest kid I ever coached. I mean, not just on the court. His basketball IQ is off the charts. But I would talk to him and I'd say, yeah, I finally got around to reading Moby Dick. And he said, yeah, I read that in junior high. It was really good. (laughs) Every time I would mention a book, he'd go, yeah, I read that in high school. I really like that. But I like the Norwegian version better. And I'm like, oh, come on. (laughs) He's such a smart kid. Oh, my gosh. So... Okay. So I have to ask,
1: I'm ready. Who
0: were your mentors? Who are the people coming up? And then, and then I want to know about books before we run out of time, what books had a big impact on you? So let's start with the people.
1: You know, I'll tell you, there was a person who made a huge difference in my life. I, I always think of the people who made a difference who may not know it. Those are the people who I think are extra special. And this man, his name was Mr. Finn. And I have to tell you, his name is Mr. as his first name, because I don't know about you, Mark, but when I was growing up, no adults had first names. Their names were only Mr. or Mrs.
0: Oh, in my house, you had to call them Sir, exactly. Man, Mr. Mrs. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so I only knew him as Mr. Finn. I grew up in a family where neither of my parents graduated from high school. So no one was really talking about college or thinking about college, but I was. I had my eye on that prize. And when the time came for me to go to college, um, my parents had not planned for that. And I don't believe that parents owe their children an education, but I think my parents seemed a little surprised. And so I had, I had a part-time job and I had saved and gotten a scholarship, but I was $2,500 short on the amount that I needed. So I was young, and I didn't know the ways the bank worked. And at the time, right, the banker lived in the same community as everyone else, just in a slightly better house. So I went to the bank and asked Mr. Finn if he could help me, what kind of a loan could I get? Now, I was 16 years old asking a banker for a loan. And he sent me home with some student loan papers. And my dad, who was not prepared for that said oh I don't want to sign this loan what if you don't pay it back and I was thinking gosh have we never had dinner before have you not met me I thought you were my dad yeah yeah so I went back to Mr. Finn and I said you know my dad won't sign the papers and is there any way you can help me and he made an unsecured $2,500 student loan to a 16 year old girl wow and I don't think I knew at the time what a great deal that was he and, was George Bailey right he it's a made, wonderful life yes and he made a decision that totally transformed my life and years later when I was graduating from law school and I was clearly much more aware of how banks worked and how loans work I went to ask him why he had made that decision what had he right. seen and you know Mark he had already passed away And I won't know what it was that he saw that made him willing to stick his neck out and make a choice for me that totally changed my life. So when I think about special people who made a difference in my life, who may not know it, I often think about Mr. Finn.
0: Yeah. My German teacher in high school said to me one day, you're better than this, Mark. I expect more from you. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was the one that got me started speaking. She asked me to come talk to some kids at the high school. And to this day, I call her up a couple, three times a year, tell her I love her. She's 84 years old. And uh, she changed my life.
1: It's so important that we do that, that we take that that time to be able to have those conversations with people.
0: To thank the people that helped us become who we are. Last question. What? Well, book? I'm
1: going to. Can I tell you one more story before well, we Well, no, we have that? about
0: four oh. minutes, so All I want right. to make sure I get the book in okay. there first. Okay,
1: you will have to have me back for the other story then.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to suggest <laughs> that anyway. We ran out of time. We're absolutely going to have you back. So rather than ask you what your favorite book was, uh, what book's on your nightstand now?
1: The book that's on my nightstand right now is called Oil and Marble. It is historical fiction, and it is the story of a seven-year period when Michelangelo and da Vinci both lived in Florence and were vying for dominance in their respective fields. It's Edis, so fascinating. The Edison
0: and Tesla of Florence.
1: <laughs> so amazing. And it has me even sparked up to return to my Italian lessons that I've kind of drifted away from over the Oil
0: past. and Marble by... Yeah.
1: Well, now I'd have to run into the the bedroom (laughs) to tell you for sure, but Don't do that.
0: Okay. You got three minutes. Can you squeeze
1: that story in? Yes, I can. Okay. So I was speaking on a stage at a fairly large conference and there was a woman in the front row who was making uncomfortable eye contact with me. You know, as a speaker, we like to be engaged. We like to know that people are getting our message, but Oh, man, that woman was like locked eyes with me. No smile on her face.
0: It was freaking you out.
1: It was freaking me out a little bit. We got off the stage and there was a little uh, book signing cocktail party. And everywhere I looked in out of my peripheral vision, that woman was there. And I was getting a little creeped out thinking, oh, this is this isn't right. And so she marches right up to me and said, you don't remember me, do you? And I was thinking, oh, no this could go wrong in so many ways. And I said, actually, I'm sorry, I don't. I can tell that we must have met and could you help me to recall how we know each other? And she said, I was a paralegal at a law firm that you came and spoke at, and you found me in the file room and told me that you saw potential and that I needed to do whatever I could to get up and out of there and into a better profession. And I did go to law school. And the whole time when it was hard, all I could think of was how you saw something in me that Mm. day in the file room. And I have to tell you, Mark, I'm grateful that that day happened to be a day that I was saying good, supportive, encouraging things. Because we all have those days where sometimes we might have said something unkind. It was a moment for me that I realized the absolute necessity of being thoughtful with my words and realizing that I have the ability to lift people up and I choose to do that.
0: Words are tools.
1: They are. And so I was grateful that she brought that story forward to me. But boy, I sure was also glad that it wasn't some other crazy thing I had done when she said, you don't remember me. I know some of your listeners are like, "Uh uh-oh, how does that go down? But yeah, so I think on both sides of that, who we lift up in the world And how we remind and thank the people who have lifted us. Because when I hear someone say they're self-made, I'm like, none of us are self-made. No. Each of us has been lifted and guided and supported, even with unseen hands.
0: Well, I told my kids, your future's so bright it burns my eyes. You're going to go so much (laughs) farther than I ever did in school, sports, and business. And I said it hundreds of times until one day they believed me, and then they did.
1: Yeah, I'm so Couldn't grateful to Kevin for the introduction.
0: I know. We're going to run out of time here, young lady. So I am so grateful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And yes, we'll definitely have you back because there's much more to come. As a leader in advanced HVC technologies, Mitsubishi Electric is committed to continuous innovation around efficiency, comfort, and wellness. From electric cars to electric water heaters to electric heating and cooling, the future is electric. The demand for all of our electric heat pumps have never been greater. So there's no better time to join our community of premier contractors and grow your business. Here are some of the reasons why partnering with Mitsubishi Electric is a great idea. Mitsubishi is the number one selling heat pump in America and has been the industry leader for over 35 years. Mitsubishi offers local technical support and has a network of excellent distributors. Mitsubishi's regional sales and marketing teams are available to meet with you and help you grow your business. To find out more, contact mitsubishicomfort.com. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me at 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at success.net. Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, simply go to my website www.sparkingsuccess.net And remember, make it a great day unless you have other plans.